This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Earlier in the year, I did a bit of research into a topic that could be the missing piece in our protection against COVID. We've heard a lot about vaccines and masks, but it's possible to do more to slow the spread of the virus. And it's something that has parallels to a public health revolution that started in the mid-1800s. In 1850s London, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. The city was filthy and people were basically drinking poo. The Thames was, was largely considered, an, it was an open sewer. This is Dr Declan Page from the CSIRO. There was no sewage treatment, so even where there was sanitation, it all just ended in the river, which then people also drew water, water from slightly downstream. Water supply was communal, with public pumps that people would visit to get water from. So certain pumps, for example, ones that were really shallow and largely connected directly to the river, would take water from the River Thames pump through a little bit of a little bit of sand of the groundwater and then be basically be pumping raw sewage from that was dumped in the tents. This was also a time of pandemic, but rather than a respiratory disease like COVID, it was cholera, a bacterial illness that spread through, how do I explain it? People accidentally eating or drinking poo. And in 1854, London was suffering through a particularly bad outbreak. No one knew why it was happening. But a man called John Snow had a strong hunch. And he focused his attention not only on one part of London, but a single tap. And one of these taps was the Broad Street Pump. After a bit of number crunching... He was able to see the correlation between where people drew their water and cholera outbreaks. There was a very direct connection between this pump and the prevalence of cholera in the local region. And then he did something about it. And so what John Snow did is he came and he took the, the handle off the pump and put a lock on it so people could, would stop using it and have to go to a different one and thereby reduced cholera and was able to show that he reduced cholera incidents in that local area. It was a public health revolution that solved not only a deadly mystery, but to cap it all off, it's regarded as a founding moment of the science of epidemiology. It was a revolution within a revolution. What's all this got to do with the novel coronavirus, I hear you ask? Well, COVID is all around us, and at the moment, it's only getting worse. You know, in the whole of 2020, there were just on 1,000 deaths, and yet we've had more than 7,500 deaths in the first half of 2022. It seems that while vaccination will save many lives, it's not going to be enough alone. So, do we need another revolution in public health? But this time, not in the water we drink, but the very air we breathe. Yikes, I have found myself on a bus. I mean, I chose to get on it. (laughs) It wasn't part of my plan for tonight and I am shook, but I am busting to get off this bus. I just feel really vulnerable all of a sudden basically don't have the choice to get off until I get to my stop and I can't hold my breath for that long so yeah pray fatigues we hear a lot about improving ventilation 
including from this guy. Have they got their ventilation right? Ventilation. Taking action on ventilation. 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 Ventilated environment. But we don't seem to be talking very much anymore about ventilation. But what do experts and Norman mean when they say that ventilation needs to be improved? How bad is the air I'm breathing? How do you even find out something like that? Well, it turns out there is a way. And the idea of how to do it came our way from a guy called Brendan. Brendan, nice to meet you. How are you doing? How are you doing? To meet you. How is our reading looking at the moment? Oh, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're outside, yeah, we're so outside. that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all good. Brendan oh. is a keen CoronaCast listener and got in touch via our Submit a Question link. So I set up a time to meet with him. We chatted for about an hour. I'd love to play you some of our chat, but I forgot to record it. Brendan lent me a CO2 monitor to carry around, with the idea being that the level of carbon dioxide in the air is a sort of proxy for how well a space is ventilated. The higher the level of CO2, the stuffier the room. The stuffier the room, the higher the risk of catching COVID if a positive case is around. All right, so I've just picked up the carbon dioxide monitor from Brendan and... We were sitting at a very windy, cold cafe, um, windy and cold by Brisbane standards at least, but very well ventilated. So the whole time we were sitting there talking, we had the monitor on the table and it was sort of around 4.20 for most of that. So I'm really curious to see how that changes as I go about my day and my next couple of days. Um, yeah, so I got in the car. Even on this short drive, I think I'll see, see what, what difference it makes. And thus began the great CO2 monitoring experiment. The reading is saying 913 parts per million of CO2, which is actually, I think, a lot more than I thought there would be, considering how few people there are in the supermarket. In the next few weeks, I travelled through airports. Pretty packed in here, but of course everyone's wearing masks. And I'm getting a reading of about 810. On planes, the... CO2 monitor got up to about 1,500, which is in, like, the red zone, at right about the time where we all took our masks off to eat our food. To the gym. 1,200 a couple of times. So, I mean, not great. And through meeting rooms. 2,000, right in the red zone. And everyone was a bit surprised and we all sort of looked at each other like, oh, my gosh, we might have COVID in this room. Um, And then I just asked if we could open the door. And we did, and it, like, dropped by half, like, straight away. All the while taking detailed notes of CO2 levels. At the moment, I'm just kind of feeling like, ugh, I just wish I didn't know. I want to go back to living in blissful ignorance. (laughs) I'm just tired of knowing when it's bad. And then just like is all too common these days. So here's something funny. Yesterday, my family and I went for a road trip down to the Gold Coast from Brisbane to see some family. And I just happened to look at the carbon dioxide monitor in the car as we were going down. It was like, yikes, that's high. Good thing it's just me and my immediate family. Well, guess who tested positive for COVID? This morning, one of my immediate family members, I mean, I guess I live in the same house as them anyway. It's just kind of ironic that I've got this monitor. I happened to look at it in an enclosed car. Not really a massive surprise. Feel still feeling fine at the moment, uh, but it's just like just timing, I guess. And um, yeah, I don't actually really know what to do with that information. But here we are. I am a close contact. I would have been anyway, but I feel like I'm a particularly close contact given. I think it was about 2,000 parts per million in the car with all four of us in there. 
yeah, I guess I'm now monitoring for symptoms, wearing a mask and keeping my distance from other human beings again. So all in all, my little experiment was eye-opening and sobering. I was surprised how bad some places were and downright concerned at others. I avoided catching COVID, but only just. And with new stickier variants that are reinfecting people more quickly, my odds of catching this virus again are getting even shorter. So it's no wonder experts are urging dramatic action. We need the same revolution which happened in the 18th century in relation to water and cleaning the water. We now need the same revolution in relation to um, indoor air quality. This is... I'm Lydia Morawska, professor at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. I led a paper which was published in the Journal of Science titled Paradigm Shift in, uh, in Approach to Infection Control. And when she's not writing papers on infection control, Lydia, just like me, is carrying around a CO2 monitor as a proxy for ventilation. And that's because she says proper airflow is the number one thing that could help dramatically reduce and limit infection of COVID-19. Improvement in ventilation means reduction of the risk, means a lower number of cases and a lower number of health effects. That's that's as simple as this. And there have been enough studies demonstrating this, that in an environment where ventilation was uh, better, there was in in fact much reduced uh, number of cases. Right, so if there's so much evidence, like why aren't we seeing it being done? What are the barriers? Well, political barriers... The usual government response barriers in many situations, particularly when there isn't direct and immediate relationship between the cause and effect. If I can compare the situation with contaminated water, imagine that water in the tap is contaminated and people drinking the water would get affected basically immediately. So it's a very, very short response and lots of people immediately. So the cause and effect is very close in time and very clear to demonstrate. So therefore, there's no doubt that actions should be taken and who will be blamed if it's not taken. But in terms of infection, let's say that people are infected, several several people are infected in a particular interior. They will not get sick within a few hours. It will take a few days. And then proving that this was that particular environment, not somewhere else, it's by itself difficult. Of course, if the whole room was infected and there were cases like this, then it's much easier. But still, it is an investigation into this and each case is specific. So this is kind of more nebulous and it's always then more easy to sort of put blame. Maybe it was not here, maybe it was there. And was it really here? So this is the, co- the, the complexity compared, let's say, with the situation of cleaning, disinfecting the, the, the water. We've seen governments and businesses really recommending vaccines and masks and staying home and all those sorts of things that are obviously useful. We know that there's evidence behind them, but we haven't really heard quite as much about ventilation. Why do you think that is? Well, this this is a very, very big problem because this is the one of the most important measures to take. Otherwise, it is putting responsibility on individuals. You put the mask on, you stay home, you take all the disadvantage of the situation and we won't do anything in terms of improving ventilation and lowering the risk. I think this this is the main reason that this is the government prefer to put the responsibility of individuals rather than taking actions in this. So that's the problem. 
So ultimately, improving ventilation alone won't remove COVID from our lives, but it will help reduce the risk of infection because poor ventilation is everywhere. Even Lydia, our ventilation expert, still managed to catch COVID the other day. And guess where? At the conference. Uh, and interestingly, this was a ventilation conference. Uh, and when I sent an email to my family, uh, instead of taking pity of me, they all laughed that you got COVID at the <laughs> ventilation conference, which wasn't very considered. But the point is that it is, this, it is that situation, particularly social situations, so whether it was the, the dinner when I entered and I realised immediately that this is the wrong place, but I was a guest of honour during that conference and I wouldn't, uh, during the dinner, you cannot keep your mask on, you can't do anything. So that was the situation, shall I take this risk or shouldn't I take? I took the risk and <laughs> we saw what happened. Distinguished Professor Lydia Morowska, a ventilation expert from the Queensland University of Technology. And if you're interested, having the CO2 monitor at home when we had a positive case in the house was actually useful. We kept the windows open, we kept an eye on the monitor, and amazingly, no one else caught COVID. How many steps did you do today? Or floors did you climb? Perhaps you had a bit of tracking technology on you to crunch the numbers. But do these physical activity monitors actually help you be more active? There are mixed findings. So a group of Danish researchers collected the evidence and say, yes, as far as step count goes, monitors make a difference. Jan Christensen was part of the team. Thanks for having me. So you found physical activity monitor use did seem to increase people's activity by the equivalent of about 1,200 steps a day. What does this translate to in health terms? Well, we know that 1,000 steps per day more will be equivalent with better health, uh, better health-related quality of life and less mortality. If you start wearing a step monitor and you kind of get motivated by that, that makes sense. But does the effect wear off over time? No, they will still work behind the first couple of months. We know that when you're using an app or something else, it will tend to decrease over time. But when we explored the heterogeneity of these studies included, we did not find that uh, intervention link affected the results. Right. And so the other thing that you're looking at, you were looking at people kind of moving more. You're looking at moving people from light physical activity into that moderate or intense physical activity. And it seemed to do that a little bit, but it didn't really seem to reduce the amount of time that people weren't moving at all. No, despite having over 100 studies in the systematic review and about half of them was looking at sedentary time, we couldn't see an effect on sedentary time or decreasing sedentary time. We see that in, in the individual studies as well, so it wasn't that surprising. We know that when looking at, at these outcomes, uh, sedentary time seems to to show competing results uh, as we can increase moderate to vigorous physical activity, but it wouldn't give the effect on certain terms. There is evidence that people really kind of use a wearable for about nine months and then they give it up. Is that something that your research looked into? Uh, not directly, but indirectly, we assessed the heterogeneity of the studies included, and we could not. So that's find the difference that between the study because you're looking at existing studies. So you're looking at the way they yeah. varied and how they looked, what they looked yeah. at. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. 
uh, we did not have uh, individual participant data, uh, so we could not uh, look at individual level. But when we looked at group level, uh, we could not find that. So with the results that you have been able to confirm, how do you see this being used by medical uh, practitioners to sort of help improve their patients' um, physical activity? Yeah, these findings could have a, a broad implication range from, ranging from general practitioners in a public health uh, way and uh, over to a hospitalized patient that we discharge from the hospital with with uh, um, this intervention but it's it's decent uh, or it's uh, important to say that this is not one size fits all uh, we can see that within the studies that some respond very well to this and some do not respond at all but when we're looking at group level uh, we will see this uh, quite good uh, effect of these uh, wearables and step counters and stuff like that does the type of wearable make a difference? I mean, my phone has a step counter in it, but I can choose not to use that versus some people who might have something that they wear on their wrist um, that might give a bit more precise information. Uh, the precision is another thing. <laughs> uh, ladies tend to have their phone in the back uh, and then the precision is not that good. But if, if the uh, people wear it in their pocket, then the, the hardware... Uh, is designed to, to measure the step counts uh, in the pocket. So so it will be rather precise if you wear it in the pocket, but if you wear it in the back, it will not be that precise. But the question was about something else as well. Well, yeah, how much of a difference <laughs> does it make to your actual physical activity if you're wearing something that's a bit more precise or yeah. something that has an accelerometer in it or something that, that measures your heart rate as well? Yeah, the type of, of outcome measure here it's not matter. We cannot see that if you're wearing an accelerometer, a watch, or anything else. It's it's the feedback itself that 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 gives these effects. So so the monitor does not seem to have a, a relevant effect itself. Briefly, the number of steps by itself only sort of tells you so much about how active someone's being, the intensity of their activity. Is step count still the right measure to be talking about here? The actual is is the feedback you you receive and 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 that's affect your behavioural change to do more physical activity, uh, and that could be done in, in different ways. It could be a step count. It could be uh, anything else you have feedback on, on including steps, uh, number of stairs you climbed, uh, stuff like that. So it's it's the feedback that that will in terms to motivate you to do more physical activity. So it's the, it's the motivator that's the message. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Dr Jan Christensen is Senior Researcher and Head of Research in the Department of Occupational Therapy and Physiotherapy at Copenhagen University Hospital. Could there be a marker, a biomarker, to monitor ageing, which can tell how fast or slow you're ageing. And if you knew, what happens next? A known marker is the telomere. They're at the end of your chromosomes and they shorten every time cells divide, but also with things like adversity and smoking. So how good are they really at predicting whether or not you'll die prematurely or develop certain conditions? Dr Carolyn Schneider was the lead author on the largest study of telomeres ever, and she spoke with Norman Swan about her work. Thank you so much for having me. 
So what did you do in the study? We used the vast data set um, of uh, the UK Biobank, which has more than 472,000 patients where they measured um, the telomere lengths. After this initial examination of the patient and the measurement of the telomere lengths, the patients were followed up for 12 years. And this makes it um, the largest data set to my knowledge to date. And we used this data set to really look into the prognostic value of the telomere lengths for overall mortality but also for core-specific mortality. For general mortality, we only found a modest risk increase for 8% um, for each standard deviation telomere shortening. 8% is not so much. For example, the risk if you are diabetic, it's more like 300% risk increase. Or if you are obese, it's a 150% risk increase. So this 8% per telomere shortening, it's statistically significant, but it's just a modest risk increase. But if we look at specific diseases, for example, the risk to die of respiratory diseases, including coronavirus, which we also um, yeah, tested, was up to 40% elevated per each telomere shortening. And what was quite interesting and unexpected from our study was that cancer-related mortality was not associated with telomere shortening because this was something that was often discussed in, in the community if um, yeah, shorter telomeres were associated with cancer development. And our study shows that for overall cancer, there's not an association with shorter telomeres, but also as for general mortality, for specific cancers, there is an association as, for example, lymphoma or leukemia, we found a strong association with telomere shortening. So basically, one of the things that our study shows was that organs vary in their susceptibility to telomere shortening. And the second thing that we could show is that for the general mortality, telomere lengths might not be a good marker. And we do not encourage people at this point to go and get their telomere lengths measured. Now, people have said, look, shortened telomeres are both genetic and also environmental. So if you smoke, if you're living in poverty and in, in lots of air pollution and so on, your telomere length goes down and that's a mediator for living less healthily and having more chronic conditions. Where are you able to tie this down as to cause and effect, particularly cause and effect in terms of what was causing the shortened telomere? Yeah, that's an interesting question because in the second part of our study, we looked at the association of telomeres and telomere lengths with lots of diseases at once. For example, in our cohort, we had uh, 1,847 different diseases and then look at those associations which are most strongly related to telomere shortening. And what you already mentioned, the strongest hit was smoking. And this is also something that is already known that smoking causes telomeres to shorten. And this is also something that people could do if they want to avoid the shortening of telomeres. But to really dissociate um, cause and effect, we replicated this analysis and we corrected um, for gender, for BMI, age, and also smoking and alcohol intake. And we limited all the diseases only to those diseases that were diagnosed at least two years after the telomeres were measured. So we were at least trying to find out which diseases um, yeah, arose after the measurement of the telomeres. 
And we could basically replicate the findings of our study that mostly respiratory diseases were associated or were strongest associated with telomere shortening. And then we found um, diseases also of the liver, of um, hematopoietic diseases, and as I already mentioned, some cancers that were associated with telomere shortening. If your findings are right and they're replicated by others, what's the significance? At first, we have to say that one significant finding of our study is that we really discourage people to get their telomere lengths measured at uh, this point in time. And we still need to find this one um, biomarker that we might get measured in the future to see our general health and to maybe also predict our lifespan. And this is something that was hoped that uh, the telomere lengths could be. Yeah, this is something that we at this point in time say the telomere, they cannot do it. And the second thing is um, that we could very nicely show that different organs um, vary in their susceptibility to telomere shortening. For example, the liver, which was one of the organs that we found that is associated uh, with telomere shortening. People had more liver diseases when they had shorter telomeres, that we need uh, more research um, yeah, focusing on the different um, organ systems and not just at uh, telomeres in, in general. But the magic marker to tell you how long you're going to live is still to be discovered. Yes, and this is obviously um, the next uh, thing that we are focusing on. Um, we will still be trying to yeah, look uh, a little bit deeper into telomeres and also how they are associated to nutrition, to um, smoking and alcohol consumption. But also on the other hand, we are still looking for this magic marker. And some groups are already looking at uh, the epigenome to find um, a marker there for longevity. But maybe also we can use uh, telomere lengths as a marker in a specific subgroups. So maybe it might just not be the right marker for everyone, but to predict a specific disease, telomere lengths might be useful. But for this, we need also future studies to dissect this. So is there a way of looking after your telomeres? Actually, there is a way to look after your telomeres. And um, this is actually what I can recommend to all, because we know a lot about lifespan prolonging effects that may also prolong your telomeres. It is not yet shown if you can do something about nutrition or exercise. But what we know is that if you don't smoke and if you don't drink too much alcohol, because these are two factors that can shorten your telomeres, and we will do more research to find the right amount of exercise and maybe to also look into nutrition and telomere lengths. But what we can say now is that maintaining a healthy weight is also something that, that your telomeres do not get too short. What I just um, wanted to, to say is um, that even if you got your telomeres measured somehow and they turned out to be short, it's not something like a death sentence because especially in our study, we looked at the people with the 1% shortest telomeres. And of course, we found a strong risk increase for some diseases and also for general mortality. But still, they were among the people with the 1% shortest telomeres and still were healthy. So this is also something that I want to give to the audience that even if your telomeres are short, there is something you can do about and um, you can just live a healthy lifestyle and this will have more life prolonging effects than anything else you can do for your telomeres. Carolyn, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Dr. Carolyn Schneider is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Genetics and Translational Therapeutics at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And that's the show for today. Catch you next week.
been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.